0: That's $110 discount off of $199 per year list price. Membership will renew annually at the then current list price. So again, check the link in the show notes of this episode.
1: You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to Tea Break Time Travel, where every month we look at a different archaeological object and take you on a journey into their past. Hello and welcome to episode 10 of Tea Break Time Travel. Very exciting, we're into double digits. I'm your host Matilda Siebrecht and today I am savouring a very fragrant lemon lavender rooibos tea. I'm not sure where I got it from, but it's very, very nice. And joining me on my tea break today is Emma Jones. And are you, I don't know if you have anything quite as fragrant as I'm drinking, but uh, you are you on tea today as well?
2: I am indeed. In true British style, I've sat myself down with a warm mug of builder's tea.
1: <laughs> Perfect. What, and for those who may not may not know, what is a builder's tea?
2: Well, I would classify my tea as strong with a dash of uh, milk. Um, <laughs> no sugar for me though.
1: <gasps> okay, okay. Yeah, that's always the key. And I'm always really nervous. That's the nice thing, actually. In uh, the Netherlands, where I was living before, it's sort of, not sacrilege, but considered very strange to put milk in your tea, unless it's like a chai latte yeah. or something so I was always pretty sure that if someone asked for tea you know and I'd offer them the tea and then you could just give it to them black and that was completely fine but then every time I'm back <laughs> in the UK it's that awkward like oh shoot okay do they want milk or do they want sugar and then they'll say yes milk please and then you think okay do I do it like a strong one with a dash of milk or do I do it with like half a cup of milk it's always very stressful for me but uh yeah, that, yeah that's I'm probably just not
2: hard enough to drink my English breakfasty black um that's that's, that's a push. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Oh no! All of the all of the what's it politics politics around tea drinking. But uh, anyway, excellent, good, good, both on tea. And so, apart from obviously being a long lost cousin of the great Doctor Indiana Jones, I presume as you share the last name, uh, was there any other reason that uh, got you into uh, archaeology or an interest in the past? Well, I guess
2: probably like so many people uh, in archaeology, my story loosely starts when I was around seven, and I was asked. <laughs> you know, like most people ask seven-year-olds, what would you like to do when you grow up? And I kind of, you know, defiantly replied to them, well, I'm going to be an archaeologist. Nice. So, you know, as a fellow Jones, I only felt right that I should follow (laughs) in all these footsteps. And uh, yeah, when I wasn't watching Time Team, uh, you can tell I'm a 90s kid, my parents would find me digging in the garden, unearthing small fragments of porcelain uh, and whatever else was, you know, there that I'd you know, definitely decided must have come from an ancient Roman pot or something similar. So, yeah, I actually had this hilarious notebook uh, that I'd made myself where I'd, like, record my finds and draw fragments of white (laughs) fabric and have, like, a, you know, a picture next to it of what, you know, amphora or Samian Ware that that piece had certainly, you know, come from. Wow,
1: that is dedicated.
2: (laughs) Needless to say, my seven-year-old self wasn't immediately true in becoming an archaeologist. I did actually end up going into uh, photography and videography. Mm. But I guess as times moved on, my kind of interest and passion has circled background. And here I am kind of immersed in the world of archaeology again. So that's pretty cool.
1: Well, welcome back. I actually was the opposite almost. I started doing film. I always wanted, well, I went. Yeah, long story. I wanted to be a vet, then I wanted to be a primatologist. There were all sorts of things going on when I was younger. But by the time I was actually thinking seriously about what I wanted to do, I wanted to be a film director. So I started getting into media studies and, and that side of thing. And then while I was at uni, discovered archaeology and went, huh, actually, <laughs> this is... Uh, this is yeah. This is pretty fascinating, but uh, it's always fascinating to hear the different ways that people get into it because I always get the question, oh, but how does, how does one become an archaeologist or, you know, why does it, why does it start? And some people indeed like you, uh, since they were tiny, they wanted to be an archaeologist. And for some people it came a lot later. So uh, I'm always interested to hear the different paths that people take. So you did the photography and videography, but did you kind of actively choose archaeological topics to document or was it just sort of luck that you fell back into archaeology?
2: Yeah, I mean, I guess it's, I guess it's kind of luck. I'd probably consider myself a bit of a jack-of-all-trades uh, in that, yeah, this this kind of just happened upon what I'm doing now. So when I, I graduated from uni, um, photography, and I actually spent eight years working as a yacht photographer. So through oh, the wow. pandemic, clearly running around the world and (laughs) photographing boats out sailing wasn't really an option. And so I kind of, yeah, I found myself back in the UK and uh, I ended up making a website for Ancient Craft, which is where that journey began into prehistory, I guess.
1: Okay, well, yeah, no, that's indeed a very... Strange uh, uh, connection between yachts and, <laughs> and prehistory, but I suppose that, you know, and watercraft. Um, <laughs> but uh, nice. And uh, we'll talk about this a little bit more later, but one of the things that at least I know you for, and I'm sure a lot of people know you for as well, are your fantastic replicas uh, that you create alongside your partner at, at Ancient Craft. And how did that interest start? Were you also always very crafty or did that also come with the kind of more media aspect of it?
2: Yeah, I guess uh, pandemic, Ancient Craft website, after the initial kind of period of isolation, uh, I remember James dropped off a big box of prehistoric replicas for me to photograph for the replica shop. So I had to learn pretty quickly what the difference was between a Meldrith socketed axe and a Group One shield palstove axe. Yeah. So with a lot of time <laughs> on my hands and not much else I could do, I yeah, I guess I could, yeah, trying to avoid a temptation to join the nation with a month long of Netflix and chill. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I just started researching and reading and kind of getting, getting really interested in, in prehistory.
1: Ah, so you were one of the productive ones during the pandemic.
2: <laughs> yeah. I don't want to, you know, name and shame anyone for, you know, yeah. Making anyone feel bad. bad but yeah. I guess, so. I guess we, we all, all know who
1: we are. are. It's fine. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I really, really worked hard to try and keep that TV off.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Although it is, I mean, it is amazing how many things people picked up during the pandemic. There was that phase where everyone was doing sourdough bread, and everyone did. I I was chatting to uh, Ashley Airy, who's the founder of Ashwood Candles, and she was saying, oh, and loads of people started doing candles in the pandemic and, you know, all of this kind of thing. So I guess the difference is you continued afterwards.
2: (laughs) Yeah. And I I think that was what was, I don't know, I think that was obviously there were lots of difficult times for everyone and probably in the grand scheme of things, I was fairly fortunate in my experience of that time, but it was really nice to sort of sit back and see some of those things like start to evolve and yeah, come into fruition. I know ashes candles are incredible. So yeah, really cool business yeah, no. out of that time period.
1: Yeah, I think it's. I mean, yeah, indeed, like you say, obviously, it was. Well, it still is a, a terrible time in that respect, and a lot of people had a really bad experience with it. But I think that if you if you try to focus on the the positive aspects, there's a lot of things actually that I wonder if without the pandemic would have even happened. I mean, for I'm just thinking of, for example, like online conferences and and that size of thing as well. You know, you have this a different way of experiencing international interaction. And uh, I don't know, I think that that's also quite a nice thing that has started that has now become more normalised, you know, more accessible then to a wider group of people in some respects.
2: Yeah, totally. And maybe it was a kind of important transition. I mean, I clearly can't speak of the archaeological kind of community much pre my sort of more serious involvement with it, but it seems like it's provided a really good push in a direction that actually makes archaeology a lot more accessible for a, a wider community, like you say. So that's, that's pretty cool too.
1: Yeah, definitely. Well, cause I had, I was one of the ones, uh, while others were making sourdough bread and lovely prehistoric replicas, I made a baby, uh, in the pandemic. I was one of that lot. Yeah. So then attending conferences obviously afterwards was that extra bit trickier, and then it was fantastic that they were all online because i could just sit there with her on my lap or you know with her sleeping in the next room and it was completely fine so i think uh, yeah there's definitely been a lot of positive changes as well that have happened i think uh, as a cause of the pandemic so which you know trying to put a positive spin on a on a terrible situation <laughs> basically <laughs> and Of course, one of the standard questions that I ask all of my guests on here is as it is called tea break time travel. (laughs) If you could travel back in time, where would you go and why? I'm very curious to hear this one, uh, considering your (laughs) wide range of of, uh, expertise and interest.
2: So the the best thing about this question and being asked it now is that I get to give this answer before James does, and I think <laughs> when he when he realizes what I'm about to say, he'll probably uh, yeah, well, there's a he'll he'll have a laugh because um, we get asked this a lot and we've talked about it a lot conceptually. I'm sure plenty of people have. Uh, it's quite an exciting thought to be able to mm-hmm. you know time travel back and. Yeah. What would you see? Smell? Usually smell is the first thing I think of. What on earth would it smell like compared to what we're used to now? Mm. But yeah, I, <laughs> I'm i totally stealing his answer now.
1: <laughs> um, <laughs> we won't tell him and then he'll say the same thing in the next recording. He'll yeah, we'll we'll <laughs> look period. like he's just copying <laughs> you.
2: <laughs> so yeah, I mean, we, we kind of laugh at the fact that, you know, imagine if you used your one time, your one opportunity to go back and see how Stonehenge was built And it either turns out that it's exactly the same as what we believe it would be today. Mm -hmm. Or actually, it's just, you know, made by aliens. And then you'd have to come back and, like, (laughs) nobody would believe you. So what what would be the use in that anyway? I don't know. But, okay, on a more serious note, uh, I'd probably... I'd probably have to choose, yeah, like jumping back in time to the Bronze Age because from a completely selfish and personal point of view, I just really want to know how those guys were making those jet necklaces that have been found in Scotland. Mm-hmm. So that would be my my, my moment.
1: <laughs> it's uh, that's similar to my one, actually. I really want to go back and see what on earth the carved stone balls were all about in Scotland. Because, nice, Yeah. yeah. And, and, and it's one of those things that you can only know by going back and actually chatting to the people who are making. Them.
2: Yeah, I'm like what is what could possibly be driving you to spend this much time smashing a ball <laughs> into these intricate shapes? Like, what's
1: going on? But and because indeed you made that fantastic replica of the what what was that uh, one that you made again the necklace?
2: Yeah, the uh, it was the actually the Pultalich jet necklace just from nearby Kilmartin.
1: Uh-huh.
2: Yeah, flip took a long time.
1: <laughs> and I'm just
2: totally in awe of them. Really, yeah, some big mysteries still to be solved with just how they actually, how they drilled a lot of the like spacer plates. It's insane. It's real, yeah. real precision work that, yeah, I think I've only just started to scratch the surface on.
1: Hey, good part. See. <laughs> <B. laughs> Well, thank you very much uh, for joining me on my tea break today. And before we look at today's object, let's first journey back to around 2500 BC to the north of England. The rolling hills stretch out in all directions, covered with closely packed bushes, clusters of trees, scattered standing stones, the occasional low mound in various stages of construction or being overcome by nature. Looking around further, we see a figure bent over their work, a carving tool in one hand and a large rounded piece of white stone or chalk in the other. And as we watch, this shape takes further form, carved into an almost drum-like shape with geometric lines and circles decorating its surface. Later, it will be placed alongside a small bent body within a tomb to be covered up and join the other mounds in the area." So today we are looking at something that I was actually unfamiliar with and I only was introduced to it when I visited the World of Stonehenge uh, exhibit at the British Museum, and that is the Falkton drums, which we'll get into the details soon. But first, I always like to have a look at the most asked questions on the Internet, courtesy of Google search Autofill. There weren't that many about them. It seems that other people are also as ignorant as I am. Um, so uh, the first question, though, was what were the Folkton drums? Folkton drums. How do you, I don't know how you would pronounce it, actually.
2: I'm going to go with Folkton. I'm, I'm not sure <laughs> if that's right either, but I guess we're just going to have to run with it.
1: <laughs> that sounds good. To be fair, we can rest safe in the knowledge that they probably didn't call them that. So it's OK.
2: Yeah, <laughs> sure. And next time I'm in Yorkshire, maybe I'll have to have to ask what, what someone in Yorkshire would say. So, the yes. Folkton drums are a set of three solid chalk cylinders uh, that were found in 1889, I believe, in a child's grave near the village of Folkton in Yorkshire. Like you said, what's incredible about the drums is that they are highly decorated with these amazing geometric patterns and what is thought to be stylized human faces. <gasps>
1: This is something I'm going to ask you about later, actually, <laughs> because, because indeed I found that very curious. I think that was what was nice about this ex- exhibition was that they had all of these different objects from different parts of the world or, or different uh, regions of the UK as well with, from this time period together. And there's so many patterns that overlap between all of the objects. So I just looked at something which had what looked like a face on it. And then I saw this drum and went, well, that's also a face. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious, uh, I mean, we'll also get into this later, but are they are they called drums just because of the shape of them?
2: Yeah, so it it's kind of one of the funny things that we, you know, when I've put these replicas in people's hands, members of the public, and told them that they are, a you know, a drum, um, they've kind of first been really surprised at the weight of the things because they're so flipping heavy. Uh-huh. And the second question that usually comes quickly after is, you know, accompanied with a puzzled look on their face of, Why are they called drums? (laughs) (laughs) Because if you tried to play them like a drum, firstly, I'm sure the decoration wouldn't last that long. Yeah, they really don't make much noise. So I'm guessing that's archaeologists uh, deciding that they're drum-shaped and uh, not necessarily for their musical abilities.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Fair enough. Disappointing, but okay. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, the second question that came up was, how are the Falkden drums made? So I kept it intentionally vague in my little uh, time travel description because uh, the time period that it is, I mean, I'm assuming it's stone tools uh, or do we have any evidence that they might've been using something else?
2: Yeah, exactly. So um, it's a great question. I guess to some extent, we may never know how these objects were made exactly. Like so many other things from this time period. And I guess that's where experimental archaeology starts to play a role in our understanding of the past. In terms of how I made the replicas, it was a process of looking at what materials and tools would have been available to the original makers uh, in the Neolithic, and starting to experiment with different tools and techniques to figure out how they could have achieved the finished result. So through my process, I'd kind of theorised that the drums were made in a couple of phases. The first phase would probably be a rough-out phase, using different ways of napping, or in other words, a glorified way of saying they'd have hit it roughly into shape.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Nice, simple (laughs) words, always good.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And then potentially they could have used like a hafted axe head to do some of the finer shaping you know they would have been doing a lot of familiar processes like that for the woodworking that was going on at the time so I mean it seems I would say from kind of trial trying it out it would be maybe axes would have come into the process more in the cutting out phase of actually extracting the rock Or maybe they are just finding opportunistic sort of lumps that they're then working down from there. But yeah, to an extent, it sort of seems, you know, potentially overkill that the thought of somebody, you know, really going at a piece of chalk with an axe. But, you know, you never know. And then kind of second phase would be more refining. So uh, in terms of kind of my application of the tools at the time, that would have been uh, maybe flint flakes or blades, and then, yeah, the task of finally decorating the drums could have been achieved by either a flint blade or an awl. But from my understanding of the objects, there aren't any use-wear analysis that can be obviously seen, I guess, because there is, you know, a degree of wear on the surfaces of the drums.
1: That is interesting what you said with, with the use-wear indeed, because I mentioned the calfstone balls earlier, they've been a sort of pet love of mine uh, since I discovered them. And I do useware analysis. That's my speciality. Speciality. That sounds so weird. My specialization, I think is the better, the better word to use within archaeological analysis. And I really wanted to do some kind of useware study on the balls, but it's a similar issue, I guess, to what the drums must be and that they're sort of so worn already on the outside. And you mentioned the drums were found in 1889. Is that correct?
2: Yeah, so who knows what they've done with them between right them and
1: now? <laughs> Especially, my gosh, the early 1900s, like the things that people were doing to archaeological artifacts. I was looking at some things from 1950, even, I think, and they were so obviously polished with something afterwards, and like someone had just glued on the bottom with this really thick sticky glue that just obscured all traces and I was going no um, so yes I'm, I can imagine unfortunately it's probably difficult to do any sort of use on the on the Folkton oh drums, totally
2: so. and yeah, I think I sure. think they've actually done some is it reflectance transformation imaging and like photogrammetry ah. of the drums but as far as I'm aware that sort of showed sort of evidence of erasure and reworking but not necessarily come out with any kind of solid Answers for what they were using to actually make them. But uh, well, corrected, you know. I'm happy to hear from someone that would tell me otherwise. Oh, cause, please,
1: yeah, definitely. Yeah, if anyone's listening brilliant. and needs a project, <laughs> <laughs> please do. My, we will I'm read on it. On
2: time machine. Come on, guys.
1: <laughs> yes, right. Uh, Although it's one of those issues, right? That's what they always say. They say, surely if we'd have invented time machines at any point in the future, we would know about it by now, (laughs) which is just so, so disappointing. But uh, anyway, I'm also happy, by the way, that I haven't had a single guest on yet, which who's said, if you could travel, where would you go and why? And has said, actually, I'd go to the future. So I'm (laughs) waiting for that day. (laughs) But uh, related to that question, this was actually one of the most common things that came up and I thought, ah, I have the perfect guest to talk about this, was just the phrase kind of Folkton Drums British Museum or Folkton Drums Replica. So you are the one, correct? You made that replica.
2: Oh, is that what came in the Google search?
1: That came up in the Google search. It was one of the most common ones. That's
2: ridiculous. (laughs) Oh, amazing. Well, I mean, I am one of maybe a couple of people that have made a replica of the folkton drum <laughs> and I did then s- sort of put it in my bag and go into the exhibition and I've got a funny little picture of me standing next to the the originals and you know m- meanwhile wondering who was going to take me down out of the security
1: I was, about <laughs> to say, was there a security guard in the background of the picture going huh <laughs> yeah yeah <huh?
2: laughs> So I couldn't get arrested <laughs> on that occasion, thankfully, but yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, and indeed, the photo the jumps were part of the sort of the British Museum, the the, the exhibition crazy. World of Stonehenge. And I'm not actually sure where they are now. Are they, are they still in the British Museum? Do you know where they're housed, I'm, where they're on
2: display? I believe they were on loan to Stonehenge for a while. I don't know if that's where they've gone back to now or if they've returned somewhere further north.
1: Oh, okay. Okay. Good to know. Well, so if anyone wants to see them, just do a little tour around the UK. I'm sure you'll find them somewhere <laughs> on uh, on your tour.
2: Um, Hopefully they will be on display. Otherwise we'll send you on a wild goose chase and you'll never find them. They'll be buried away in the stores somewhere. And <laughs> good luck. But you'll have a lovely time.
1: You'll have a wonderful adventure. You'll see the countryside. It'll be great.
0: <laughs> hey, Archaeology Podcast fans. Anyone that's heard me on a show has likely heard me mention coffee one or probably a thousand times. Coffee, however awesome it is, has some downsides and should be consumed in moderation. That's why we partnered with Laird Superfoods. They've got lots of stuff, but their coffee and coffee creamers have been engineered to taste better, provide functional benefits, and don't contain any refined sugars. So are you ready to feel more energized, focused, and supported? Go to LairdSuperfood.com and add nourishing plant-based foods to fuel you from sunrise to sunset. Use our promo code ARCPODNETFEED at checkout and save 15% on your purchase today. You can also click the link in your show notes.
2: Before Shopify, were you wondering, where my sales at?
1: So we do know a little bit more about the Folkton drums, but perhaps we could go into a little more detail about them. So we mentioned before that they're sort of called drums just because of potentially their shape. And that's what antiquarian and archaeologists decided to call them. Are there any other similar objects or are there other kinds of inverted comma drums?
2: Yeah. So, to my knowledge, there are two other examples of drums that have been found. The first was found in Sussex, and it's known as the Levant drum, and I believe that was found in in 1993. That drum is undecorated, although I guess there could have been earlier markings, but have just worn away in time. And then in 2015, another drum was found, which was the Burton Agnes drum, which, funnily enough, was found in Burton Agnes, <laughs> about fourteen miles. <laughs> Oh, you've been so inventive.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I was about to say we're an imaginative lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: So yeah, that's that's about fourteen miles away from south of Folkton. And like the Folkton oh. drums, the Burton Agnes drum also has a high level of carving and similar motifs. But interestingly it also features three holes that have been drilled down from the top face of the drum in kind of like a tripod formation.
1: Oh, interesting. And were those two other drums, or the most recent drum even, uh, were they found in a similar context, so also in a tomb?
2: Yeah, so I believe the um, Bert and Agnes drum was actually found in a grave of three children. And it was also found with a uh, chalk ball and a bone pin that I was also on display at the, uh, at the British Museum. Oh, which, yeah, that's, it's kind
1: in, of- that's really interesting that they're always found, because you mentioned that the Folkton drums were also found with a child?
2: Yeah, exactly. And in quite a lovely arrangement around the child's body for the Fulton, Fulton drums, uh-huh. There was sort of the first drum by the top of the child's head and then the second and third kind of arcing around the crouched position of the of the child oh. around the spine. So it kind of paints a really nice picture of this sort of yeah child being surrounded by these drums.
1: Interesting. I'd be so curious. Now I'm just really curious (laughs) to see whether, because indeed, we've talked about the fact that they're probably not drums in the musical sense. (laughs) Are there any theories about whether they could have been used for something or whether they had a particular meaning? Or do you have a favourite theory?
2: (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, there are a couple of theories about what the drums were used for. One of them being whether used as a divination device or, you know, as a protective talisman of the Mm. child or children that they were buried with. I personally like the theory that was a recent study in the, I think it was the British Journal for the History of Mathematics, um, huh. published. Yeah, they basically have theorised that they could have, the drums could have been used in the construction of monuments such as Stonehenge. So they found that by winding a cord of a fi- a fixed number of times around the drums, you could obtain like a standard unit of length, which I believe would be 3.22 metres Uh And that length of three point two two meters appears to have been used in the construction of large stone and timber circles, including Stonehenge, Durrington Walls in Wiltshire, and yeah, I guess that's kind of to me is could potentially you know is potentially a really fascinating thing. Uh. I'm not sure it answers the questions of why they would then go to the extent of burying them with the children. So. It's kind of my favorite theory, but I feel like it doesn't quite give me all the answers that I'm, yeah, Mm. for the context of how they were found.
1: Which, I mean, you know, maybe they just really liked visiting Stonehenge, that child. <laughs> and, maybe uh, they
2: did. Maybe they know. were the son of the maker. <laughs> or yeah. Something. yeah.
1: Maybe they commissioned it. Maybe it was just a really, you know, like a, those those children that the parents just give them everything, you know? So it was like, I want a stone circle. It's just mine. But we can't make you a stone circle. To- I want a stone circle. Fine. Okay. We'll make you a big stone circle. And, you know, Stonehenge. Please <laughs> don't cry anymore. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're making a scene. I mean there's another theory as to why Stonehenge was built. You're welcome, (laughs) people listening. Sure that's the right one.
2: (laughs) Back to the time traveling point, you know, if we went back and realized that actually Stonehenge was just built to calm down a small child, that's not quite as exciting as anything that we're thinking now. So maybe it's best it remains a mystery.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I think, yeah, indeed. That might be one thing that I'll come back and they'll go, so did you see anything? And I go. No, 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 (laughs) nothing. Shame, yeah. Oh, oh, such a shame. Such a waste of a time travel journey. But but I, I like this indeed. That the folk drums are almost this perfect. That encapsulation of the fact that there can be so many different theories, and I mean, each one technically works. You know, like there's never going to be a theory which can be absolutely proven false. I mean, for example, this mathematical idea, you know, you can't say, well, no, they're not that standard because they are that measurement. But then that doesn't necessarily mean they were used as that. But yeah, I love this idea in archaeology that, you know, as long as you base it on solid evidence and you use kind of scientific reasoning, that you can create basically any hypothesis on what sort of things happened in the past. And I think that these are, yeah, really nice encapsulation of that idea almost.
2: Oh, totally. And there, there are definitely a divide in people's opinions of if you, you know, so I've had people come and ask us like, so what are they used for? But same as the calf stone balls. And like, well, we just don't know. And they're like, well, how do you sleep at night? How how are you ever <laughs> going to sleep at night until you found the answer? And I was like, but maybe there's something lovely in the fact that we're not always going to have the answers for everything like it, yeah. what's a world without mystery I don't know exactly
1: <laughs> also I mean how could we find the answer well the time travel machine I guess but uh, apart from that <laughs> that you know you'll never know <laughs> the answer and almost trying to find it is then just I mean gosh you could wither away <laughs> trying to find the answer to these things
2: Many sleepless nights.
1: Exactly. <laughs> to be fair, I probably, I mean, not sleepless nights because I'm worrying about what the calf stone balls were used for, but just, you know, ponderings, uh, dreaming. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a lovely thing. That, anyway, that and a small sorry. child to wake you up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that too. <laughs> I'm waiting for the next uh, feed. But uh, sorry, I, I seem to be talking more about the calf stone balls in this uh, episode than the folk drums. Let's go back to the folk drums and apologies. And uh, we talked about this a little bit before, the fact that the design on the drums has sort of been likened to a human face. And this is very similar to other rock art that I think uh, is in Orkney. They, they have very similar, and you have like little Orkney Venus, the so-called Western wifey, who also has that kind of very dominant eyebrow in sort of a frowning shape almost. And then the little eyes and uh, all of that kind of thing. I mean, do you, do you think it's a face? Is that, do you agree with that interpretation? Oh,
2: I'm I'm definitely inclined to think it's a face. And of course, like we as humans are predisposed to find. Faces and everyday yeah. objects, you know. I think it's—is it face peridolia or something? The you know the phenomenon that that yeah, <laughs> one of those other words that we cannot pronounce.
1: It. I was about to say, I'll just smile and nod and go mm, yes, yes. <laughs> but, uh, I admit I so yeah, no that, that
2: phenomenon, you know, uses the same brain processes that we use to recognise and interpret other real human faces. So there's always a chance that we're going to want to find, you know, a face when there might not be a face, but what I kind of circle back to is the fact that the design of those parts of the drums are just so different to the geometry that's sort of featured on the rest of them. Oh, interesting. Those are kind of crossover. The geometry and the patterns are, you know, have really good links and ties to other parts of prehistory, but the face is just so unique to those pieces that, Ah, yeah, they're definitely little eyebrows, aren't they?
1: Why else would you do that? Little frown. And I'm just obviously, I mean, this is a podcast. So unfortunately, we don't have any visuals of the of the drums. I'll put some uh, links in the show notes so that people can follow a link and and have a look at them. But in terms of the, for example, the geometric designs, are they, I can't remember, are they sort of straight lines, like almost zigzaggy things? Are they lots of curved lines? Or are they a bit of a mixture of everything?
2: Yeah, a bit of a mix. So on the tops of the drums, which are is are the more circular, well, it's the circular kind of face. Mm-hmm. There is kind of rings uh, and marks that you would more typically associate with the sort of cup and ring mark lines, I guess. Uh-huh. And then on the side faces of the drums, you've got all sorts of uh, zigzaggy patterns. You've got uh, little lozenge shapes that are, you know, very heavily feature later on when we're getting into yeah, gold lozenges found in Wiltshire in the Bronze Age.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, so it's it's kind of a bit of a mix. There's kind of beaker pot references. So yeah,
1: yeah. So proper kind of conglomeration, I guess, of, of uh, or of of everything. Well, it was sort of that general artistic style, I suppose. Then uh, that happens. No, that's really interesting. And I mean, as we've mentioned, you have replicated one of the drums because there's three drums, correct?
2: yeah so three three for the folkton drums, and then I guess you could add in the Burton Agnes drum as a fourth
1: mm-hmm. for the decoration. For the
2: stylized and the yeah decorated
1: yeah, and when you were creating your replica, did you replicate one of the folkton drums, or did you kind of do a amalgamation shall we say of of all three and one kind of thing?
2: Oh sure, yeah, so actually i I started on one of the folkton drums. the second that I've been working on is the Burton Agnes drum, oh okay. And at some point, I'll probably endeavour to have a collection of all four. But very much kind of taking a lot of... So one of the things that I, maybe we'll get into this a bit later, but really focus on is trying to get the drums and any replica that we make as accurate as possible. Mm-hmm. So I've spent a lot of time looking at, you know, photographing, drawing, mapping out dimensions and sizes to try and create this sort of as close as you can get without having them in front of you to copy them, version of, of the real thing itself.
1: Yeah, no, amazing. And I mean, I, I'm i a big believer in experimental archaeology being a fantastic way of better understanding the past and creating replicas such as these are one of the aspects of experimental archaeology. How did, I mean, for you personally, the experience of kind of replicating this drum or these drums, if you're working on the second one, uh, kind of help you to understand them better or, you know, did did it help? <laughs>
2: so i probably i probably say that it helped so far as working out how they could have been made in terms of why they were made i don't think i really gained much from the process other than you know kind of what's potentially obvious but maybe not immediately obvious if you haven't worked as kind of a creative maker yourself is that they they took a lot of time and there was a lot of skill behind carving them. So Mm. whoever was making these, whoever was kind of dreaming up and planning these patterns had to really thought about it before they just went at it because there's spacing between sections and the way it, uh, it all comes together. It's, I just, I can't believe that it was somebody that just sat down with a lump of chalk one day and started going, oh, I think I'll just do some patterns.
1: Uh, uh, Interesting. That would be fascinating to find, the kind of artist sketchbook almost of the the planning process of uh, (laughs) how to create all of these different objects, which, uh, yeah, Yeah. would be really interesting. And did you make like a a sort of rough (laughs) mock-up before or did you just indeed plan a lot and then get straight into it with the kind of raw material?
2: Yeah, I would say I just got straight into it mm-hmm. after doing the initial mapping, and I had plenty of printouts of you know to, that I'd kind of scaled to size, so I had as close as I could get to you know having that object next to you and and working from that. Yeah. When it came down to it, I just had to kind of cross my fingers hope and start scraping <laughs> but you know the biggest difference between me making it and them making it was that I was trying to make it as accurate as possible to what they did so there was probably more that went on in terms of spending the time to get the sizing and shaping perfectly right mm. but if they were using them as measuring tools maybe they were spending just as much time as I was and that's just the big assumption I've made Yeah,
1: yeah, no, I think that's fair enough. And I mean, can they? uh, We've sort of spoken about how we don't really know what they were used for. We don't really know necessarily how they were made. We can kind of imply it and and indeed try and create replicas. But I mean, can they tell us anything about almost the sort of broader context of Neolithic life? I know this is a very big question, so feel free to just say, I don't know, (laughs) and and we can move on. But um, I'm just curious if you had any thoughts on that about. What clues they can give us about the people who were making or using them?
2: So yeah, they're being created at a time when there is like clear artistic and symbolic changes that are reflected in a lot of the similarities in the artwork. Mm-hmm. So the uh, with the crossover and the patterns seen in late Neolithic passage tombs, and some of the you know decoration resembling later Beaker pottery, and then into the Bronze Age and some of the early metalwork. So there's some sort of sharing or understanding or importance of these symbols um, that are being repeated and you know whether you can go so far as to say there's sort of trends that are developing at that time within artistic representations or you know just just basically that there was a lot more going on than we can ever kind of imagine and these objects clearly held you know a big value in the amount of you know skill that their maker put into them or ha- had to make them, mm-hmm. and the time investment that they were choosing to spend on making them. Don't know if that answers your question, but yeah,
1: no, definitely. I mean, uh, <laughs> as well as I could. <laughs> so uh, no, I was just curious what your what your take on it was. But indeed, I I remember the Neolithic is just such a bizarre period as well. Sometimes, I mean, I think it's quite often oversimplified in the minds of people in terms of, oh, yes, and that's when they started farming and that's when they produced pottery and things. But actually, there's so many, like you say, kind of very symbolic and artistic, apparently. I mean, we say that, I should say, you know, caveat, I don't like using the term ritual, but that's used a lot in the Neolithic time because there are (laughs) just so many things that are so random and just so kind of, hush okay, there can't have been a practical you know, functional reason for doing this, it must have had something else. Like I can remember doing a course about sort of death and burial and everything. And in the Neolithic, there's so many bizarre burials. And, oh, it's, yeah, it's very, yeah, yeah. it's a very fascinating time period. And I mean, obviously the Neolithic's also so full of objects like carved stone balls and like the folk drums that we still don't really know anything about. You know, I mean, we've just discussed this now for sort of just over half an hour. And we still don't really know anything about the drums, but not because... <laughs> you know obviously you're very uh you're an expert in these as anyone else is but like it's just something that the wider academic community doesn't know that much about as well which i think is so fascinating out of curiosity what are your favorite kind of objects from this period so from the neolithic
2: well i feel like a cop-out answer would to say you know for me to say the the folkton drum so um <laughs> yeah i I guess I've got a soft spot for Jadatai axes. I think they are just fantastic objects. Halfstone <laughs> yeah. balls would have to be another one. Mm. But one of my favourite objects is the Maes Maur Flint Mace Head from North Wales. I don't know if you oh. saw that in the exhibition or if you're familiar with it.
1: That's the one I know. No, this is the North Mace head I've got here. I've got a bunch of replicas on the shelf behind me, so I'm just looking at them. No, but that's is it similar to the North Mace head or is it more?
2: Yeah, so in the, uh, in the sense of a sort of shape and you know polish, but the, uh-huh. the it's got those kind of diagonal cutouts all the way oh, around it. It's kind of a whitish flint, and yeah, not quite as uh, is more uniformly decorated than the now uh, mace head which has kind of got that little funny face in the middle talking about... It also
1: has a face, I was about to say. Another yeah, face.
2: <laughs> Spotting faces and things. That is a great yeah. example. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's just as such, like the yeah, Maze Mild Flint Macehead is just such an incredible piece of art and it is unbelievably mind-blowing to think about the amount of time that would have had to have been invested to grinding out the decoration because, yeah, flip, if you've ever polished flint, it takes a while <laughs> so yeah to do it to that degree of accuracy and yeah detail it's just I I don't think even James can get his head around it yet at some point we'll have to we'll have to try and make our own replica but I don't even think we know where we would begin with that one just yet
1: (laughs) oh I look forward to seeing that but yeah indeed I mean those at least with the folkton drums they're made from chalk so it's sort of fairly easy to carve I guess but uh yeah something like a flint object would be a
2: I had the easy job, really.
1: (laughs) Yes, good choice. Good choice. (laughs) I'll do this object, (laughs) but actually, so that relates a little bit to a question that I had because you mentioned slightly earlier that they were potentially just using sort of bits of chalk that they found, or they were actually cutting chalk out. Where does the the chalk that they were using to create these objects? Where does that come from? Or what do we know about the raw material?
2: Yeah, so the chalk that was used for the. Falkton and Burton Agnes drums conveniently was formed quite close by in Yorkshire. So it's from the Flamborough chalk formation. And interestingly, the chalk that they've happened to use, whether it was through convenience or, you know, some higher understanding of chalk across the UK, it just is a harder chalk than most of the other chalk that we do get in the UK. So while I'm no geologist and I definitely don't specialise in chalk formation, (laughs) from my understanding, and again, if anyone's out there that can verify this, that would be fantastic. The formation isn't necessarily older than some of the other chalk formations across the UK. So I'd imagine the hardness that you're getting in that region is coming down to potentially just harder, compre- like more compression over the time that it was forming. And because of the the hard nature of the chalk, it just lends itself really well to being carved. So it's, one of the likely reasons that the drums were able to maintain their carving for the past 5,000 years. So who knows if there were more drums across the UK that were either being created out of softer chalk, they might not have been found yet, or they might just not have lasted. So, yeah so much
1: potential. <laughs> Maybe there's more. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually then curious, I'm just thinking about it, considering that even if it's this harder level of chalk, it's sort of, I guess, then the hardest chalk possible, but chalk itself is still a lot easier to carve than some of the other objects and art objects that were being carved, such as this one that you mentioned, the mace head made of flint. And the fact that they were found in children's graves, I mean, are there any theories around whether they could have been made by children or they could have been almost like apprentice pieces so to speak uh
2: is actually a topic that i really love thinking about because and i think actually i've listened to one of your earlier podcasts and when i was hearing you say kind of the theory about children creating some of the objects that we're founding mm. or apprentice pieces i was just thinking yes because if you you know undoubtedly children in prehistory were growing up around these processes so it's not a leap of the imagination that they would have you know been sitting beside you know maybe their experienced flintnapper and uh-huh. copying what they're seeing and making themselves little scrapers so then if you've got a potter sitting with his young kid who's Messing around with a lump of clay. What's to say some of the, some of these objects aren't being made by small kids? And actually, what we are interpreting as ritual today is just the kind of wandering mind of a
1: small the foibles small kid. of children.
2: <laughs> yeah, totally. I would say in the in the case of the folkton drums, I think there would be because of because of the nature of relief carving. I'd be impressed if a small child managed to do it to the degree of detail that we do see on the drums but it's not it's not out of the question
1: yeah for a younger person
2: to be practicing
1: yeah I think it's I mean uh, it's a very fascinating topic as as well to me this idea of you know children in prehistory as well because it's something that's been overlooked so much I, I mean it's getting a lot better now but uh yeah no it's sort of uh an interesting idea. Oh, maybe. Oh, that would be so lovely, wouldn't it? Just to, you know, they were buried <laughs> with them because they had spent their whole summer, you know, carefully creating these objects. And um, mm. you know.
2: Yeah, that would be great. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, what... Just to jump back to the flint napping scene, when we were uh-huh. when we were filming for the Attenborough's graveyard, I actually had a little five year old girl sitting next to me pretending to be <gasps> my Neanderthal daughter, and right. it was yes. unbelievably remarkable how quickly this little girl picked up basics the basics of flint napping. It was like I didn't, yeah. you know, she had some innate ability that. She just, I put a piece of flint in her hand and a pebble, and she just started whacking it. And hey, presto, five minutes later, there's a scraper. And I just was like, whoa. <laughs>
1: <That's> <laughs> well, incredible. they say, I mean, that's like with language learning as well, right? It, small children can just absorb so much information and so much knowledge. And I guess the difference is they don't overthink things. Like they just. You know, oh, this is how you do it. Okay. And then they do it. Whereas for an adult, it's always like, wait, but how does this function? And what does this do? And indeed, you know, I have to map it all out perfectly. But maybe for a small child, it would have just been, oh, this has to kind of look like a face. Okay. And then, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> That's my new theory. Oh, I'll, I'll keep that one. I know that it's as unlikely as <laughs> more unlikely than the others probably. But still, I I, I like that theory. I like <laughs> so uh emma we did already introduce you obviously in the first section of this episode and we have talked a lot about uh, your work with replicas but perhaps we could go into a bit more detail of that now so as we've mentioned you made several replicas for the british museums including well i suppose this wasn't specifically made for this british museum but you did also make along with the uh, james uh, as part of ancient craft all of these different replicas how did uh, this sort of reputation for creating prehistoric replicas come to pass?
2: Well, we were approached by the BM in 2021 I'm trying to get my timeline straight now. Yeah, to ask if we could uh, provide replicas for the exhibition, some of which yeah, went on sale in the uh, exhibition shop. It's actually difficult to say if their research team just did some like internet sleuthing or you know in the build-up to the, to the exhibition or if uh, someone pointed them in our direction but I guess James has worked with me several times mm. and actually has some of his replicas on permanent display in the uh, Joseph Hatton gallery so it's likely they were already familiar with ancient crafts work and then subsequently while the exhibition was on we were a part of a couple of the was a members' evening, and then we were on the front lawn for the opening of the Festival of Archaeology. So, yeah, that was a great opportunity for us to hand over some of our replicas that were on display in the in the uh, exhibition, like the Nebra Sky Disk, and say, "Well, if you go inside, you can see the real thing in a minute."
1: <laughs> yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah fantastic! Cool. Oh gosh, that must have been so. I don't know. I would just be so stressed out. When, if something like the British Museum came to me, it was like, "Could you make some replicas for us?" Or were you guys just unfazed? You've just done it too often now; that it's not a big deal.
2: Well, I have to say, thankfully, they gave us enough time because one of our one of our biggest problems at the moment is trying to keep up. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I'm sure you'll hear all about that from James. He likes to, <laughs> you know, tell everyone that he's world weary and and, <laughs> and busy, but
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, we've yeah. Uh, uh-huh.
2: we've definitely. Got into this ring of things now. I think um, yeah. yeah, making for various people. So,
1: <laughs> and I mean, what is the process? So you know, if you decide right, we're going to make a replica of this. What is the kind of planning process involved? You've already given, I guess, a bit of a taster with the folkton drums, but is there kind of a, a general scheme that you use?
2: <laughs> yeah, so I guess my process is fairly organic in the sense that it just sort of unfolds over time. Um, in many respects, I can be really organised and plan, and I'm you know a dab hand at financial spreadsheets and organizing logistics <laughs> but actually when it comes to like a creative process i'm not very good at like just researching and reading heavily for days on end mm. i don't sit down and just sketch and you know um, labor over that process it's more likely that over the course of a year as ancient craft where we've been fortunate to you know visit a wide range of museums and heritage venues across the uk and see lots of uh, different collections and have conversations with archaeologists and museum professionals that those things are the things that are influencing me towards an inevitable kind of creation of of an art- artifact so yeah sometimes it's just a case of sitting down and having a go at things after I've kind of gone through that like vague process and yeah it definitely helps to have like a flint knapper working beside me so i could mm-hmm. just around and say oi can you make me a um, Couple more blades. So I'm uh, well. <laughs> I'm experimenting with this today. <laughs> and he just I have to say, I find that me. very
1: useful as well. I, my husband, definitely not as talented a flint as James is, but uh, better than me. And so I can say, look, I i need this drill bit, and I have this bit. And it's kind of work, but I can't do this bit. Can you just do it for me? I'll go. Yeah, sure. <laughs> go, yeah, sure. <laughs> like, yes, yeah very <laughs> very convenient.
2: <laughs> yeah, with Nebriskydis, for example, that was something that took a lot of planning in the sense kind of similar to the folk and drums with mapping out and trying to get everything in the right places Mm. but that was like next level photoshopping and printing and yeah layering things over and trying to make sure that everything was you know within a millimeter of being in the place that it needed to be in so
1: yeah yeah. imagine (laughs) and I mean do you now find because you've made so many different things with different designs from across the time periods do you find that you look at archaeological objects as well in a different way. Almost you look at them and you're like, oh, well, that's the same sort of style as this or that's the same kind of shape that this would have been.
2: Oh, 100%. And there are things that, you know, going around the World of Stonehenge exhibition, which we I kind of keep on circling, yeah, referencing, <laughs> I just walk up to cases and stand there for probably an abnormal amount of time thinking to myself, well, how have you done this? <laughs> like Some of the gold work, I was just... Looking at it, like, I don't get it.
1: Wow! <laughs> if anyone could make this time machine, it would be really useful for everyone. Yeah, like a really. lot. <laughs> <I'm> <Okay. laughs> no, interesting. And now that you have this, then sort of experience with making yeah, a range of replicas. I mean, the sky disc, these drums, all sorts of other things. What advice would you have for others who want to kind of try making the it- themselves you know making these sort of objects or who who look at an object in a museum and think well you know let's give it a shot
2: oh that's a good question i would probably say almost don't overthink it and just give it a go the beauty with prehistoric replicas is that they're rarely perfect Mm. and we see loads of examples in the replicas that we make where the original makers do get it wrong even in the production of the drums, there are actually sections which have been yeah misplaced and there have been attempts to erase a mistake that was made. And something, I think actually in one of, I think it's a second Folkton drum where some of the eyebrow, like the eyebrows have been drawn in the wrong place and they've tried <laughs> to erase it and then redrawn it on underneath.
1: Hey, we've all had that issue. <laughs> <laughs>
2: God, that guy looks way too surprised that's lower than <laughs> that um, <laughs> So yeah, it's it's really fun to incorporate those mistakes into the replicas that we mm. make. And and you know, like we made a point to purposefully add the, the stars from the sky disc that had later been covered by the gold crescents on either side of the disc because otherwise, yeah, otherwise it can just be too perfect. Mm. So yeah, don't be afraid to get it wrong and practice
1: <laughs> yes yeah Release the a childhood i guess would be uh, a nice way <laughs> yeah nice because
2: you're not gonna throw a paddy because stonehenge wasn't built for you yes
1: exactly i want stonehenge <laughs> <laughs> And of course, as well as now being heavily involved with more kind of archaeological replicas and the ancient history of things, as we mentioned right at the beginning, you're also very talented in uh, visual media. And how does that tie into your archaeological work? Do you see, I mean, the, the archaeological side of things differently because of that experience that you have? Or how does your kind of interpretation of the past, how is that affected by your your kind of expertise in that side of things?
2: Oh boy. Um, well, yeah, I guess I guess my background in photography and videography really helps, kind of obvious now I say it out loud, but helps to communicate the aspects of archaeology to a broader kind of audience mm. that may be interested in prehistory. So I really enjoy playing that role as the visual communicator between, you know, what, what could just sort of be stuck in the realms of research papers and kind of, yeah, the academic experts and, yeah, finding a medium that is more accessible to a wider audience. And I guess over the past few years, I've worked with Ancient Craft, you know, to to build our YouTube channel. So our like nap time series is kind of a really, it's a really satisfying way to help flint nappers, like budding flint nappers, enthusiasts, and equally archaeology students themselves to understand the principles of flint napping and encourage mm-hmm. them to nap along with the episodes. So yeah, we've, we've, yeah, I had a lot of pleasure working with various museums and heritage sites to create learning resources that can show what life was like in prehistory. And yeah, I guess it feeds back into what we were saying earlier about, uh, yeah, kind of breaking into the modern day ways of communicating and communicating across platforms that transcend, you know, region with online resources. and
1: Yeah. And do you find that you have to kind of compromise in, I don't know, the the authenticity, shall we say, of kind of the interpretation or of of how you're visualising things in order to communicate with that modern audience?
2: Fortunately, I work with someone who's a real stickler for details. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I don't think there's any way if I was filming with James, for example, that I could possibly dumb it down for an audience (laughs) in terms of what we're representing. Yeah, I mean, there's obviously always going to be an element of like film TV magic that happens behind the scenes. You know, if we're casting bronze axes, uh, everything you're seeing on camera is fully authentic, tried and tested by James himself. But when you've only got a short window to film that, it's likely that there's been a couple of, you know, and here's one we've made earlier moments just right. to help that process along.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes, time lapse and then cut. Oh, look. Oh, it's finished. <laughs> Ta da! <laughs> Yeah. Okay. No, I'm always curious with, uh, I I remember chatting with someone who is a a professional photographer and indeed had that interest in archaeology and history and everything, but never necessarily did it from a sort of educational standpoint, if that makes sense. So he didn't do degrees in archaeology, I guess he focused instead on photography and visual media. So I'm always curious to hear how people who who come from that side of things or who have a combination of both, uh, as in your case, sort of approach it if that makes sense
2: yeah totally and and you know it is like with the work I did before this I was a sailor and it helped massively being a yacht photographer and happening to understand what sailing was all about it it works in the same way for this the understanding I have of the archaeology and the replica making processes definitely inform like help inform the shots that I want to kind of portray over to you know, through the media projects that I work with. And yeah, just knowing what what's happening with the napping when I'm filming James
0: yeah. helps
2: me to know where I need to be at what time and yeah, how, how it's coming across to to people who actually are also experienced nappers themselves and are interested in specific parts of what he's doing.
1: Yeah. No, and I like the deed that you were mentioning your sort of, the focus seems to be indeed on education rather than purely entertainment, if that makes sense.
2: <laughs> yeah and and I think you know they're both important, right? Mm-hmm. yeah we've got to, we've got to find ways of enticing in and, and you know younger generations in and f- hoping that they'll be interested enough to continue and become the next generation of people that are going to be finding these drums and and discovering their true purposes.
1: Yes. Yeah. The, all the answers will be <laughs> discovered <laughs> at some <laughs> point in the future. And I'm just final question on this topic. I'm curious. So we sort of talked about how, you know, the the, the positives of, of having that sort of angle, shall we say, or, or kind of that level of experience, but are there any kind of difficulties or, or disadvantage? I mean, what would you say is sort of the most difficult part of the, the work that you're doing, be it the, the visual media side of things, the replica side of things? The, the interpretation of the past, shall we say? <laughs> Visualisation of the past, I guess, might be a better way of saying. <laughs>
2: well, so like fair visual representation of the people, I would probably say is something that is quite difficult. Mm. I know there are definitely times over the past couple of years where actually it would be really helpful if I wasn't the one behind the lens and if James could pick up the camera and get on with doing some filming, you know, we'd start to be able to produce... A fairer representation of what was actually happening in the past, because we are still, unfortunately, supporting the kind of portrayal of man does work. You know, right. man, <laughs> the man, the the yeah. male flintnapper and uh, <laughs> among every other thing that we seem to be doing, and something <laughs> something that we would really like to start doing more of is breaking down some of those misconceptions of gender roles for example in the past but also you know we don't look like neanderthals so invariably when we come to film for any project there's always going to be a difficulty in and just our sheer, you know our appearance and the color of our skin yeah so that's kind of yeah it's fighting that hollywood caveman representation of prehistory and trying to positively replace it with something that's yeah a bit more encompassing and and accurate
1: Yeah, which I guess is a problem because uh, I mean, uh, on the one hand, yes, there there are probably ways to show that, but indeed it can never be a completely authentic view of the past because I I actually spoke to someone, if people are listening, who are interested in hearing more about interpretation and visualization of the past. There's a whole episode on the Exarch show, um, which focuses on this very topic. And one of the guests on there was talking about how he had done a whole photo shoot, but using, for example, white actors, because that was just who was available and who he was using. And at some point he decided, no, this is just wrong because there was a recent scientific study that showed that actually the population that was living in this time would have had blue eyes indeed, but would have had darker skin. But then he had the issue of trying to find actors that fit that <laughs> physical description because it's just very, very rare in the modern day. And then you have the whole, uh, you know, slightly moral aspect of, okay, do I then Photoshop darker skin on people with blue eyes or Photoshop blue eyes on people with darker skin? You know, it's that, is that uh, yeah, there's a lot of issues I can imagine around how to approach that side of things.
2: Yeah, totally. And And something that is really encouraging is the fact that larger media organizations and some of which we've been working with recently are really starting to value that as as a principle so you know looking at different ways that you can use uh, cgi techniques to kind of take actors that are perhaps that naturally fit the criteria Mm. more and then in using them to enhance to a point that is yeah a fairer portrayal of what we believe, you know, based on reconstructions, prehistoric people would have looked like. Yeah, which is great.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's nice because that means that then the sort of more popular media sources or the the, the what people will see more of is then a fairer representation and not just uh, James Fyndapic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Completely.
2: And I was uh, I was very honoured that for most of the mammoth graveyard I was blurry, and that was you know the biggest compliment I could possibly receive because what it meant was I just didn't look Neanderthal enough (laughs) and they they knew it they knew that they were never going to get around the people that they would happened to be able to bring together for that filming project and as a result we've got some really kind of moody suggestive kind of blurry shots of some people and silhouettes in a cave yeah rather than yeah it's a bunch of
1: <laughs> <laughs> which I then yeah then gets into the whole thing of sort of photography versus illustration because that's easier to get around in if you're illustrating uh, or if you're you know uh, doing animation I, I guess it's because you can just sort of create yeah, totally. everything yourself it's
2: always, so, come, always comes down to a budget and time restrictions unfortunately yeah,
1: exactly Oh, no, fascinating. Oh, well, thank you for giving a little more of an insight into that. I thought uh, as we had someone on who had that level of expertise, I thought it would be interesting to chat a bit about that. But that unfortunately marks the end of our tea break today. Sounds like you guys have have so much to do. I don't want to keep you for too long. (laughs) So uh, probably we need to get back to work. But thank you so, so much for joining me today, Emma. It was really interesting. I had a really great time.
2: You're welcome. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. And enjoy.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And if anyone wants to find out more about Emma's work, for example, with ancient craft, or wants to know more about the Fulton drums, you can check the show notes on the podcast homepage. I'll try to post some links there. Other than that, I hope that you enjoyed our journey today and see you next month for another episode of Tea Break Time Travel. I hope that you enjoyed our journey today. If you did, make sure to like, follow, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And I'll see you next month for another episode of Tea Break Time Travel.
0: This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. And was edited by Chris Webster.
2: This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archepodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.
0: Join us today during the Jeep Celebration Event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe.